0: This one time in Spain, I recognized my perfect European moment. That well-deserved afternoon outside the Barcelona flat, after ironically completing a draft manuscript about Chinese food, I headed to a spot that I had in my sights for months: Revolution Plaza. My chosen restaurant of the day, La Pepa Tomate. This relatively small square is beautifully appointed in the picturesque urban village of Gracia, half covered by a line of plush trees and sun-kissed in the right spots at the right times. She had been called calling my name since I arrived in town. Once there and breathing that adopted sigh of relief that only an Iberian can, I found my bistro. I mounted my perch and I placed my order. There I sat solo at the expected tin table on the plaza, giant awning above, leaned far back with my legs crossed in the most casual fashion in front. laxadaisical and at times gazing at walkers by. Deep glass of red in my left hand and trusty phone in my right. Small straw fedora atop cocked ever so slightly to the side. A thin gray scarf flung carelessly across my shoulders as dark round sunglasses kept the mystery alive. The server announced himself and I was immediately brought back to my equally fantastic reality. The only American author writing a book about Chinese street food living in Spain, eating tapas. My name is Howie Southworth. I travel, I eat, I cook, and then I write fancy words about all of it. My cookbooks are loaded with wild stories and fabulous bites, and I've shared plenty of my own adventures. But now, I want to hear somebody else's for a change. Sauce and Translation is a timely podcast spanning the globe of food, spinning tales of lavish meals, and epic gastronomic failure. Join us for some well-deserved armchair globetrotting, let's get saucy! My guest today is Spencer Laudiero. Spencer and I went to high school together in New Jersey, and this is the first time we've spoken since. Now, before you young guns find that weird, this was well before social media, your cell phones, hell, even before language was developed. Ugh. I found my way to California after school, yada, 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 and Spencer eventually found his way out there too, only to take over where I left off. I'm kidding. Spencer is an acclaimed animator, writer, and director who has worked with projects the likes of Looney Tunes, Robot Chicken, The Ricky Gervais Show, and Family Guy. I absolutely love his work, so you can say that we've been connected over those Intertella tubes since we went to the Dust Bowl school. Anyway, here's our chat. So, Spencer, tell me everything that's happened to you in the last 30 years, and go. Nothing. Yeah. Look, I usually start uh, this thing with an inquiry into how you fed yourself during the pandemic, but I'm truly curious about something that's quite different. I presume that animated projects have gotten produced in this last year without a hitch, but it can't be that simple, right?
1: Oh Well, no. I mean, they had to change their whole workflow. We went from uh, going into a studio, having meetings, going into writer's rooms, you know, and the ease of all of that to... Getting onto Zoom, figuring out bandwidth, figuring out times, people being in all over, all different parts of the world, how are we going to start submitting our, our work in? Because now they need to make huge databases that everybody is able to get into, but secure. So like in the beginning, I was doing some work on Central Park and I had to go in and I had to pick up one of their computers because that's the only way that they could guarantee that everything would be secure. And so, like, it's been a real learning curve, but at the same time, since so much stuff was with computers, they, they pivoted really fast. Like, it's, 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 it's pretty impressive how fast the animation industry figured itself out.
0: Now, like with anything else about these Corona times is I can think of a couple of things that I wish never, ever go back to the way it was before. So for example, ordering food for pickup at a specific time at any time during the day. I hope that never goes away. I hate the reason it exists in the first place, but come on, you know, truth is the truth. Within that context of animated projects and the security of digital files and such, what do you hope does not go back to the way that workflows were before?
1: I'll be honest with you. I... I, I kind of hope that I only have to work in-house like two or three days a week because I can get a lot more done at home. But at the same time, I like being around people. So there is a part of me that does like going in. The other side of it is, is that I hope we're able to work from wherever we want to work because that's a really great thing also. As long as you can make it to the meetings and get your work in on time, I don't think it should matter where you're working from. So that's going to be. A huge part of it but the other part is that I feel like it's gonna lower the prices hopefully of the shows and maybe that money will trickle over to the to the employees that would be great
0: right without the real estate right the physical real estate yeah production costs go way down and to, to go to the talent is is a would be a boon I think right that's what you're referring
1: to right absolutely mm-hmm. and you know but I mean I'll say this much
0: <laughs> I hope I hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, that there's the reason these these practices exist these days is not ideal. Um, But I think that that uh, whatever context we were living in are nightmares for a lot of folks. Some of the silver lining includes a a push of society in a direction that we didn't know we would go. Right. So that's a a kind of an exciting thing. All right. So now that I've got the the work stuff answered, because that, that that's I think having people get the sense of another industry, I think is, is this is an important vehicle for that. And I've talked to a good number of people in a variety of fields and everyone's going through something similar, but with specifically with animation, I I knew that there had to be a unique situation there. Uh, So thank you for answering that. Yeah. Yeah. Now onto the relatively boring part in the last year plus, how have you and your family changed the
1: way you eat? That is very interesting. We have a lot of great restaurants, obviously in, in Los Angeles, And so we would probably order out like three times a week. But since the pandemic, we've just been cooking at home a lot more. It's been interesting. I've never been into cooking. Like it just hasn't been my thing. Right. But through this, it has gotten me into like, oh, well, maybe I'll try making that. Or I I put a teppanyaki grill in my backyard so that I could do a little Benihana for my kids when we're on, on the weekends and stuff. But it's it's. Been pretty much that we've eaten more at home, and I have really grown an affinity for chips. Uh, potato, French fries. Potato chips. Holy crow. So that might be about 10 of the 15 pounds I've found. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you, I got
0: to ask, are you uh, experimenting with the variety that are in the market, or are you making your own
1: chips? I, uh, I am. A- experimenting with the ones in the market, but my wife wants to make kale chips and she did one time and they were really good, but, uh, she wants to try a different kind of kale chip where I think you put it on a a thin slice of potato and you sort of bake them together with a little oil on top. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try that out. But I mean, my wife is the baker of the house and she's, she's come up with some really, and she's a vegetarian. I'm not, but she's a vegetarian. She's come up with some really good, uh, some really good dishes now that she has the time to sort of figure it out because she works from home also.
0: So you mentioned that your wife does most of the baking. You've uh, gotten the teppanyaki game going so you could Benihana the backyard for the kids. Did you go through some other phases during the pandemic where you got really into cooking a thing? What was What was your thing?
1: So we got into the bread thing, of course, with the rest of America. It's funny because I got into burgers cooking burgers and just trying different things with burgers. When the uh, Impossible Meat came out, I would mix. So I I had first made the Impossible Meat burger, and then I made regular burgers because I wanted to taste them side by side. You know, they're pretty good. They're remarkably close. What I would do is that I tried putting some of the spices and stuff that I put into a regular burger into the Impossible Meat. And for some reason, it just didn't resonate the same. I think it's probably the fats in the burger that reacts better than, than the impossible meat did. So for the longest time, I was trying to mix sort of like a 50-50 of impossible meat and, and regular. At first, I was like, oh, this, maybe this will be better for me as far as my arteries are concerned. But then at some point, I just wanted to see where this experiment would go. Uh, strangely enough, I found that impossible meat with shredded cheese mixed into it. Is one of the best things I've ate, I've tasted. Really? Yes.
0: So you're just buying the, you're buying the bulk pound, right, and making your own yeah. patties. Yes, that's super interesting. First, I will say I do understand if you're non traditionally mixing spices into a burger mix. There's something chemical going on with the way that Impossible meat is generated. Something non biological doesn't like the mix in of say
1: right. It doesn't bind to to whatever it is. Yes. But cheese,
0: it's going to bind because the cheese is melting and making it stick together. A while back, I, I went to pescatarian. I, I do love a good burger. And the way that I'm a pescatarian is that I, I, it's for no moral reason whatsoever. It's because I wanted to see if I could do it and i thoroughly enjoy fish. My arteries thanked me and all the rest of the story is well known out there, right? Of <laughs> uh, the less beef that you have, the better in general. In fact, a lot of restaurants are going the direction of dissing beef altogether, which that's another topic for another show. I've occasionally seen Impossible and Beyond in the in the faux meat movement as a stepping stone to lab-grown flesh. But once we get to that point, don't the iterations that we're seeing now kind of fall to the wayside, right? Who's going to want, who's going to prefer the impossible texture or the beyond texture when all of a sudden you have a legit textured beef that had nothing to do with the animal?
1: You bring up a good point because what is it that people are going to hold so tightly that they're willing to go to that length? Like, do you think that they'll make the bridge of, hey, we, we can't sustain all this livestock to make meat? Do you want us to make something that is just like meat, but is obviously not? Or are you willing to open up your palate to something that isn't meat that is still just as good? Right. You know, like, we're basing our kind of understanding off of how we grew up. The generations after us are completely different. And I mean, not fully, but it's slowly changing to the point where I I wonder if they would attach to the fact of like, oh, I need something that I can feel like I'm piercing flesh or that I'm, I'm, you know, biting into muscle. Yeah. Or will they just be like, well, no, I'm just worried. All I care about is the taste. And if it's sustainable.
0: Right. I am super curious about the, I think it's the impossible people are currently developing false fish. Which texturally, to me, would be fascinating. Like that they're yeah, trying that's, to re- that's an interesting one. Yeah. replicate that. You know, that, that's going to that's hit me where I live because that's, I, I eat most of the fish, right? So whereas I can askew a burger any day, all day, even though I love them so much. Next question. If you could remember a life before the corona times, where did you travel to and what did you eat? Just the highlights.
1: So seven years ago, huh? Um... <laughs> <laughs> I would take a trip by myself every year. It wasn't like just before Corona, but it was when I went to New Zealand, that place is the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my entire life. When I turned uh, 30, I went skydiving uh, and I did it out in Las Vegas and it was like skydiving on the moon, right? It was just nothing around, just totally like left. And so then I, I went skydiving again in New Zealand and it was honestly one of those situations where. I would have been all right if the parachute didn't open because if you got to die, that's a place to die right there.
0: Night and day, Vegas versus New Zealand.
1: Holy crow! On a culinary side, I, I didn't do anything local. I was just utilitarian about it because I was just trying to get as many things in as I could. The water was fresh; like everything just tasted and everything appeared so fresh and so like ripe at the time. It was it was pretty amazing. And I, I imagine you were offered a lot of fresh hobbits. Uh, I went to the Hobbit set where they were still constructing the hotel that you could stay in, but uh, we went around the set and all that stuff. And yes, they, they did serve up a Hobbit, but I, <laughs> I couldn't get past the hairy feet.
0: Let me ask you this. If it was close enough to the Corona times and you were in New Zealand, it it, it turns out in retrospect, you should have just imported your family
1: and stayed yeah. safe. Well, that's the thing is that um. My wife's father has a house out in Kauai. And so we all went out to Kauai to stay because it's a small island of like, I think it's 40,000 people. They had 10 cases. it's uh, They could shut the island down. So we were out there for like four months and it was it was pretty fantastic. But then they would open up the island again and you're like, because people need to make money to survive. And then you're like, oh, well, all these people are coming in. And now this small island just got a lot smaller. So as beautiful as it was, we had to come back.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You took off back for the safety of Studio City.
1: Yeah, and two <laughs> days after we got back, I got Corona. <laughs> How you feeling? Oh, good. I mean, yeah, I got through it all. Everything was fine. Spencer, do you have a
0: favorite lifetime travel food story?
1: I do. And it's strange because it's the most mundane story. So when I was first moving out, from new jersey to california um i had this like rust orange bmw 3 series uh it was like a 77 or something like that and it was a piece of shit, but it was it was a i loved that car and so my girlfriend at the time and i were driving it out to california and we would have to stop off at certain places because it would overheat and so at one point when we're going through the mountains Because it would could just barely make it up over a mountain. And then it I could coast down for a while and then it would barely make it up the next one. And so one of these times when it was barely making it up, it started to overheat. So I had to pull off in in this truck stop. And I had one of the most amazing burgers I have ever had in my life there. And it was to the point where I like I took a napkin because I wanted to remember the place, because I wanted to go back to the place. It was like I don't know what spices they used. I don't know anything, but I just remember that that burger stuck in my head for nearly 25 years of just like, what was that? It was the simplest burger. There was, there was really nothing on it. It was just ketchup, cheddar cheese and this burger. And the burger was thick and it was just everything about it was fantastic. But middle of
0: nowhere, right? It
1: was a hidden gem. Middle of nowhere. I don't even know where I would find it again. Uh,
0: what well, you had to know, were you, were you in Nevada? Were you in still in like Colorado,
1: Utah? Like where, what highway did you come across? I couldn't tell you because I've gone back and forth like nine times, right? But I haven't always been able to get to that same place. And I would not be able to tell you what if it was the 40, if it was like what it was. It, it is it, the Brigadoon of burgers, I call it. I've taken the northern route. I've taken the southern route. I've taken the middle route. I've split the difference. Like I couldn't tell you where it was. But
0: imagine, so bring yourself back to bring yourself back to your early 20s, right? Because that's when this was or mid 20s. Yeah, probably mid 20s. And you probably didn't need to be that expeditious about it. So you and the girlfriend are mapping out a way across the country and you're like, well, we can bop do- over here to see the largest ball of twine or we can go over here to see the cat museum or you were like, we just want to get to f- LA as soon as possible.
1: But that's the thing, it was before really computers and MapQuest, so it was just a flat map. Yeah, yeah. Right? It was just a paper map, so there wasn't any like, let's go over to here, let's do this. It was sort of a, I guess we'll go this way, and then we'll go this way and then we'll go this way. Was it one yes. of those,
0: uh, was one of those triple map b- books, like the yeah. big, big yeah. format
1: map books? It wasn't a Thomas guide. Or, it wasn't well, the a Thomas, Thomas guide, guide, by
0: the time you got up to California, you had the Thomas guide, but Thomas yes. guide was very much California. You didn't have that going across Utah.
1: No, I, mean, I guess there would only, that would be the Thomas pamphlet for Utah. <laughs> <laughs> there's like, what, three, four roads? <laughs> but exactly. I've only ever been to St.
0: George, uh, named after the guy who slayed the dragon. But so you were there on your on your rust orange hood of the car with the big oversized map book from AAA. Or Rand McNally, maybe. Right, yeah, probably. Trying to find your way over and down hills that you were unfamiliar with. All right, all right, all right. I'm going to ask you one question I think is pivotal. Sure. Was it
1: Woodsy Hill? Or was it Desert Hill? Close your eyes and look around. Woodsy Hill. No, no, I can, I can remember the place. Okay. And it's white rocks. It's not, it's not like your red rock or anything. Then we are in Northern Arizona. Oh, all
0: right. Okay, we're Flagstaffing. Now, go from Flagstaff down the mountains, over the Sierras, and into LA. I think you'll find your place. I'm going to do some research after this is over. We're going to find that damn burger. So this burger was out of context, right? So you were taking this road trip you're just getting tired you're in a, a car that's stressing you out going up and down these hills yeah. barely making it you knew the california was going to be the the burying land for this car and here uh, you go putting the magic burger into your mouth
1: well that was the thing it was the it, it was a total side quest it was a total just sort of like oh i found a I found a gem. How great is
0: that? Well, the fates were were in your favor, right? They were like, well, yeah. CA Spencer, we're sorry about this car business. We're going to give you one of the best burger experiences of your damned life. Here you go.
1: And that's the thing though. Was it the best burger experience ever? Or were was I just like at my wits end? And you were happy to be alive. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> I will say this. I'm going to claim right here and now that that was one of the best burgers you've ever put in your mouth. And here's why. I was on the 101. And yes, because I live in California, I can say the 101. I'm driving up the 101 with my buddy, Greg. We're driving from Santa Barbara up to Vancouver because we were going to go see if there was any burritos worth eating in Vancouver, Canada. We get just outside of Eugene, Oregon during a Grateful Dead concert series and we get gas and we get the oil topped off and we head out of Eugene up the 101 toward Corvallis. So we get you know, 45 minutes away from Eugene, and the car bursts into flame. Oof. So Greg's driving, we're looking out the windshield, and we're like, I- I can't be seeing what I'm seeing, but there's smoke and or, wait, are those flames? We pull into a gas station. He jumps out of the car. Car's going to blow up. Car's going to blow up. He runs into the gas station like a Sitco or a Chevron station, walks into the Chevron station, runs out with a fire extinguisher. We pop open the hood, put the fire out. The dude and Eugene forgot to put the oil cap on. Oh, so oil's been sputtering for 45 minutes. And all of a sudden, we're driving fast enough.
1: Onto your exhaust manifold. Yeah.
0: For the engine to go into fire. So we get back. We're seething. We're so <laughs> The guy goes, oh, looks like I forgot to put the cat back on. Disassembles the whole engine to get every piece clean of oil, which we said, great, thanks. This is going to take several hours. So if that burger was not your best, what I'm about to say next would not be true. I had the worst taco of my life. (laughs) And if the gods were fair and they said, you know what, Howie, we're sorry you have to go through this. We're about to deliver the best tasting taco to your mouth. Then your burger story would be one of fate and not one of taste. I believe you had the best burger because in Eugene, you know what, Eugene, Oregon, (laughs)
1: Not known for tacos, Eugene.
0: <laughs> I, no, known for joints and uh, clouds that created by joints. You would figure that the munchies would be great. <music> Spence, do you have
1: a worst
0: food travel story?
1: Uh, Yeah. Traveling with my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. Traveling in my 92 Acura Integra out to Chicago with my dog. So it's like slush is like two and a half feet thick. We're we're drifting as we're on the highway and between all these trucks and everything. We stop off because I'm just exhausted. We stop off to get lunch. We go to a a subway because how hard could it be? And I get the dumbest sandwich I've ever seen in my life. And it was one of those deals where we got it, went back in the car, drove a little bit, eating while we drive. And it was just bun, half a piece of ham, some cheese, and... Lettuce at one end. And I was just like, this is the dumbest sandwich I've ever seen. Like, this doesn't even make it as a sandwich. And that is when I stopped eating at Subway forever, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. You know, eat fresh, right? But here's the thing I will
0: always be of the opinion that a sandwich ceases to be a sandwich when it loses its structural integrity or when it's unevenly built out. And what sounds like you ran into the second one. You ran into a sandwich that didn't deserve the name sandwich because it was not properly built out. No, not at all. How dare they call themselves a sandwich
1: company? This was an oven mitt with some garbage in it. That's all it was. (laughs) (laughs) I have to press you a little bit on this, okay?
0: You were tired. You were on your way from A to B. You were going to Chicago with your dog and got to feed the dog, got to get the dog to pee. You have uh, your girlfriend at the time, now your wife with you, and you're having conversations and maybe some conflict about directions and this and that. You're going through the line at the subway. Aren't you watching them put the thing together?
1: No line. There was no line. That was one of the reasons we went to Subway. Like it was one of those food court things on the side of the highway and Subway didn't have anybody there. And we're like, well, you know what? Let's eat a little bit healthy. Let's get Subway. You're at the sneeze guard. You're going through the line
0: with them from bread to toppings to, to whatever they're going to put on the sandwich. My question to you is, aren't you witnessing them put the sandwich together or were you so distracted by being tired and anxious and travel weary that you just didn't see them put half
1: the lettuce half the meat. Yeah, I don't watch them make the sandwich. I hate when people watch me work. Just ask me the questions, I'll tell you what to <sighs> do. There's no reason for me to stand there and watch you do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't like to watch people work. I don't like it when people watch me work. Okay. I get that from an animator standpoint. As an artiste, I, I give you credit for that because you're doing your thing, right? I wouldn't necessarily call a sandwich crafter, if you want to give them that title, at Subway as an artist.
1: I don't watch people at McDonald's or Taco Bell or anybody else. I don't watch anyone else make my food. Yeah. And they're on the same skill level, I imagine. I don't think there's any... If it's a Mike Subs, yeah, I'll watch them. Yeah. Because they make a good sub. Uh Uh-huh. If it's a Subway, I'm like, all right, let's be honest. You're not looking to retire from this job so do the bare f-ing minimum and and we'll be fine with this and you're talking about
0: jersey mics if i have you correct right you're yes. talking about jersey Mike subs
1: which is now out in california
0: because i may very well be looking for sponsorships at some point and we're clearly dividing jersey mics far away from the subways of the world i will say jersey mics thank god it finally got to california because the one thing yeah was the one thing that i lacked well, two things that I really lacked when I first got to California. And to be honest, it was 1990. California was not a bastion of all types of cuisine. There were some. There was fantastic Mexican. There was great Indian. There was a healthy uh, dose of Thai. Japanese was everywhere in the Southern, uh, in the Southland subs and pizza neither of the two did i eat during college i was in college and didn't have pizza or subs that sucks i ate a damn lot of instant ramen right
1: well that's why i went to philly for for college oh.
0: <laughs> sandwiches <laughs> but i replaced all that passion for pizza and sandwiches with an actual decent family of burritos
1: so when i first moved out here i went to get a sub or a hoagie as we yeah we call them. And, uh, I get a ham and cheese hoagie and I see the guy, uh, dicing lettuce. And I was like, ah. All right. And then I see him putting mayonnaise on it. And I'm like, what? I'm like, this is ham and cheese. This isn't a mayonnaise sandwich. Like, it was just so funny to me how I need my things a certain way to give them the title they deserve. Well, the title you're talking about is Sandwich.
0: Like I said, from the very beginning, structural integrity, it defines a sandwich. There's a particular way that things need to happen for this to be a hoax. Once that dude started dicing up lettuce, Sandwich is out the window. Now it's finger food that's falling out of a bun. We have reached the part of the show where I give you five fill-in-the-blanks. Are you ready? Yes. Blank will be my last meal. Fried chicken. Got a follow-up question. Any specific style of fried chicken? We live in a world now where there's Korean fried chicken, and there's the buttermilk Southern fried chicken, and there's
1: this spice, and there's that technique, and... What's the fried chicken that you're eating? It's going to be the sort of comfort food classic of just the the southern fried chicken, buttermilk type of thing. Just so good. Flaky, moist. Oh. A, where are you getting it? And B, what are the accompanying sides? A, I have to figure that out. I'll be quite honest with you. I haven't had fried chicken in so long, but that question just made that pop into my head. So the sides are probably going to be baked beans and uh, macaroni and cheese. Baked beans. That's a really interesting side. So you're going with Southern fried chicken
0: and a New England bean dish. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I cook blank to impress people. Picture pancakes. I have seen those on your social media. They are so damned cute. As an animator, you must go nuts.
1: Well, I mean, the people I'm trying to impress are my kids. So, you know, it doesn't really require that much skill compared to some people that are just basically doing animation cells with pancakes. But yeah, it was just one of those uh, one of those things where I was watching a show and they were dressing up a plate with, uh, I think it was sriracha, and they had it in one of those bottles. And I was like, oh, I wonder if we could do that with pancake batter. So drew it out, did some batter work and, and uh, posted them up. And then everybody came back to me with, oh, you should check this guy out. You should check this guy out. And I'm like, yeah, this, these guys are great. And they're like, you should do something like this. I'm like, I don't need to be better at this. This is about as good as I need to be. My kids are happy. Done. Just the traditional uh, run of the mill kitchen squeeze bottles. Run of the mill squeeze bottle. You put a marble inside to break up any of the lumps. Then I found the best stuff is the uh, Just add Water uh, antimima stuff. Huh. I don't know why, but it toasts faster. And so you can do your outline and then fill in and you can get a couple of good shades out of it. I'm sure there's, you can go online and find even better, like if you want to get really detailed with it. But that's, I mean, you want to have fun with your kids or just fun in general. The worst thing you can make is a pancake.
0: You recently developed a children's book, and I'm trying to remember uh, the title. I want you to promote this thing because the pages that I saw of it were really clever and brilliant. And having been a a father of younger children who loved kids' books, uh, tell me a little bit about it before I forget to ask you all together.
1: So the book was, um, there's two books. The, The first one was Eleanor Wyatt, Princess and Pirate. And the second one was Harrison Dwight, Ballerina and Knight. And it was basically these books were made because my oldest daughter, she, she didn't really fit into any of the uh, stereotypical sort of playgroups where she wanted to either be a cop or she wanted to be Darth Vader. or She wanted to be the alpha male, let's say. And she had a friend that always wanted to dress up as a princess. And, you know, he was fine with that and she was fine with her thing. And she got some pushback from some kids at the school because they didn't, you know, it's not their norm. So it it sort of rubbed them the wrong way. And through having a conversation with uh, my daughter, my wife went out to get some books to say, hey, this is normal, don't even worry about it. And there wasn't one that she really liked. So she wrote the book, and she gave it to our literary agent. And within two weeks, Macmillan picked it up. And so I illustrated the books. And then they asked us to make a second one from a boy's perspective about feelings. And so we made these two books. And we're in the process. Process of making it into a kid show. It's been interesting in the sense that when we first started the books we felt like we were really on the edge of something. and just to see how big this wave has gotten has been amazing. It's got to be so great for kids now to feel just the freedom that they can feel that like you know because society is evolving. And you know what? Corona even pushes that further because it's, it's showing that their parents don't need to fit into certain roles. Their parents can adapt so they can adapt. So it's just this whole, you know, if you're looking for a silver lining on things, Corona really has helped change the structure of the household, change the structure of our understanding of men and women. Like it's been An amazing transformation that we've gone through.
0: It's refreshing to see that there is a wave behind it. It's refreshing to know that families are in the place we've, for better or worse, been in the last year where perspectives like this can take hold. Like we were saying that the the silver linings of what we've been through institutionally, organizationally, and restaurant-wise around coronavirus, the same holds true for things like role change and who's doing what in a household and what the household means. But kudos for for actually taking the step to fill in a gap that was clearly uh, in need of filling. Mm -hmm. Third fill in the
1: blank. All right. I cook blank to comfort myself. Quesadillas. I'm a simple guy. You're really helping me figure out that I am a simple man. <laughs> What's simple
0: about a quesadilla? In fact, tonight is uh, at the old ranch, the Southworth Farm. We're having quesadillas tonight. I don't see it as something that's that's a throwaway. I mean, that, that's a complicated
1: dish. This is the, the reasoning. It's so fast. It's so easy. It's so good. Those are the three things I require. Yeah. You know what I mean? You have access to excellence
0: in the, the world of the tortillas. Are you actually picky or you really are making a worker bees quesadilla?
1: And, and that's the thing I am. I think if if I was representing any of your demographic, it's the it's the it doesn't have to be complex. All it has to be is comfortable yeah. and fast.
0: If you could erase one food from the earth, it would be blank.
1: Um, one food from the earth. It's so funny the trickiness of this is that you're asking me to think about something I don't like to think about. So I've never thought about.
0: Devious. It's a devious thing that I do.
1: It really is. Um, I I think I'm going to have to say, I think it might have to be pig's feet.
0: (laughs) What are those poor pigs going to do without feet? They're going to keep them. You want to get rid of pig's feet as a food. Uh, yeah. You know something? I, I'm down with that. I don't often like to diss foods. In oh, who am I kidding? When I write my cookbooks, I will often diss foods. Uh, I finished my Spain book, and I have a, a, good, a good friend of ours in Barcelona. is a guy from the Asturias, so the northwest part of uh, of Spain. He loves pig's feet, and he brings us to an Asturian style restaurant. He orders this dish. He's like, "Just trust me. This is going to be fantastic." And he orders this. It's a pig's feet dish that's in this very unique sauce. The sauce itself. Was so delicious tomatoes, garlic, almond powder. Like it was a very, very rich dish. Were they just a vehicle for the sauce? To me, it was. So it's in the book, but I use pork tenderloin. Like a, I wrote the the title of the the thing is P.S. Day Pork or Historian Style Pig's Feet,
1: <laughs> and I use the strike through to strike through feet in every line. You know what? I would like to amend it to any kind of feet as a as a meal. I think I'm against feet as food. Last, but certainly not least, blank is for
0: dinner tonight. Unless you just don't know what you're going to have.
1: I don't. That's legit. It's that my wife does the cooking and uh, I haven't asked her. So get surprised when I sit down. A slightly different question then.
0: Blank is what I wish my wife would cook for dinner tonight. Oh, pork chops. Pork chops and apple chops.
1: Oh my God. I love me some pork chops. Fried in a pan with a little bit of a rosemary, some butter, and some apple compote on the side. Cinnamon, a little cinnamon in there. In the cooking, not on the apples.
0: In the cooking of the pork chop? Yes. Oh, you've just gone second level.
1: I really hope she's making those tonight.
0: (laughs) Wow. Is it early enough in the, in the California day for you to make that request?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think so. I think I can make that happen. You
0: can make it happen. You know, honey, it's been so dry lately. You know, I really wish I could have rain or those pork chops. So Spencer Lardiero, this has been fantastic to catch up. I agree that it does not feel, maybe my brain does not allow me to feel that it's been the 30 plus years that it has been. I appreciate your candidness and your openness. You're willing to chat today.
1: You are a very good host. That's why it's so easy. Oh, shucks. You don't
0: mean that. Yes, I do. That's what we said, right? That's what I was supposed to say. The script. Oh my God. That's
1: right. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> anyway, so thanks, man, and uh, let's not make this the last time. Let's make uh, let's make the next time a very special episode of of Soft and Translation.
1: That would be fantastic. I'd love that. <laughs> All
0: right, man. Cheers. All right,
1: have a good one. To all of you wonderful,
0: intelligent listeners out there, remember to subscribe to this show, follow me on Instagram, and find our books with your favorite seller. Those are One Pan to Rule Them All, Kiss My Casserole, How to Cook Anything in Your Dutch Oven, Chinese Street Food, and the forthcoming Off the Top of My Head, Recipes, Rants, and Ravings of an American Cook Obsessing in Barcelona. Until next time, stay saucy and eat well.